the speed was again, and he's, oh my goodness, that is huge. It's a white flag for the Cuban. Hi, and welcome back to TrackCast by Triple Jumpers with your host, me, Marcus Lombardi. TrackCast by Triple Jumpers features the best athletes, coaches, and interesting persons from all over the globe within the track and field. Last time, I spoke with the British high jump star Morgan Lake. Check that episode out if you haven't. It's really, really good. This week, I meet up with a three times Olympic champion, two times world champion, four by 100 meter world record holder, the American sprinter, and long jumper Tiana Bartoletta. Tiana actually celebrates her 35th birthday today as this podcast is released, so let's play a little song for her. Happy birthday to Tiana Bartoletta. Now, this episode is packed with a lot of things to learn from. Tiana talks about how it was to win a world title at the young age of 19, how she fought back from a six-year-long struggle, how it was to break the 4x100-meter world record, and a lot more. If you want to hear a story from someone who has been through a lot, here it is. Let's jump into episode number 21 of Trackcast by Triple Jumpers, Featuring Tiana Bartoletta. Welcome to the show, Olympic champion Tiana Bartoletta. Thank you for having me. Happy to be here. So it's an early morning in California where you're where you're located. Uh, tell us about your typical morning routine. I mean, having an interview usually not be in your in your morning routine, but how do you what do you do when you get up and how do you prepare for the day yeah this actually isn't all that unusual (laughs) for me I wake up um between 5 30 and 6 every day so I've already been up for two hours and usually this is the time that I schedule any kind of conversations or podcasts that I want to do but if I don't have those things you know I make my coffee I sit and I try to meditate for a little while. I'll do a morning yoga flow, kind of see where I'm at, feeling my body before training later in the day. Um, because of COVID kind of disrupting normal schedules and routines, I now have to lift in the morning. So I'll then uh, eat something, sit for a little while, go lift, come back in, do some more work on the computer, do any, take care of any real business. And then like, nap until my track session later in the afternoon or early evening so that's pretty much what a day is like yeah so you go up uh, very early when do you when do you go to bed i'm usually in bed by 9 30 so it's early I would, yeah it is early um sometimes i fail at that because going to practice in the evening makes it really hard for me to unwind enough to get sleepy and so then on those on days like that, I'm like still wide awake at 11:30 p.m. and I'm grumpy because I want to be asleep and I know that I'm just gonna get up at five or six the next morning, so it throws me off a little bit. But I'm I'm working on ways to combat that. Yeah, and um, yeah, you said it's it's a bit different now with with a virus going on. So how has it been for you? Uh, now you're able to train, but how has it been before? Or have you been been in lockdown or have you been able to to train all the time? Yeah, so here in California, they took it quite seriously really early. So the this area where I am near San Francisco um, went into shelter in place, a strict one in March. Uh, that meant that the track where I was training, which is at uh, Cal Berkeley, was closed and padlocked. The gym where I was lifting was closed and locked since March. So since then, um, we've had to drive around the entire area just looking for high school tracks that were open (laughs) so that we could get workouts in. And I wasn't lifting at all because I didn't have a gym. 
and I didn't yet have a garage gym. So over that period of time, it was like, okay, ordering one thing at a time because everything was sold out to get a garage gym because one, we don't know when the gyms are going to open. And two, I'm not so sure I want to go to a gym when they open right away. So built that. And the difference is I'm on a different track maybe every day at a different time every day that I'm used to what I like. And previously what I liked and felt like I could be most successful in was having a set practice time at a set place and a routine. All of that is gone out the window. <laughs> yeah, but you learn something from that as well because when you come to, to a competition, it might be it might be delayed and it might be another time. So Yeah, you absolutely have to be flexible and I'm learning that. And, you know, I knew that. I think we all know that you have to be able to go with the flow, roll with the punches, but (laughs) it's still like that feeling of just like, is, is there, but I'm a lot better at it now. Okay, so we're going to go back to where it all started. Uh, You're born and raised in... Elyria, Ohio, and that's where you tr- started track and field as well and won nine state titles for the Elyria High School, joining the company of uh, Susan Nash and the one and only Jesse Owens as the only people to to win three, uh, no, four, four Ohio State titles two years in a row. So you had a pretty early success in the track and field. How come you started track and field from the beginning and yeah, tell us about your track and field journey from the yeah. start to to winning winning those high school titles. Yeah, Elyria, Ohio is a small city. Um, I think it maybe has 60,000 people and we had one public high school. And my dad had lived there all of his life. So everybody knew who my dad was and by extension everybody knew who we were. It was that kind of place. I wasn't I was not a spectacular athlete. There was, nobody was like, oh my God, she's going places. That's not what happened. I played volleyball. I played basketball. My parents are very active people. We would, we would just, you know, we'd go on super long bike rides on the weekends. We'd go um, spelunking, exploring caves. We'd go camping. We just did stuff, you know, like that's what we were doing. None of it was really like, you're going to be an amazing track star one day. So we're going to go to the track and do this thing. If anything, we spent a lot of time on tennis courts trying to be good at it. And we just were not good at it. And my parents gave up on us because we were horrible. Eventually, um, we got to high school. I got to high school. My dad said he wanted me to go away for university. Um, But that he and my mom didn't want to pay for it. So that I need to figure out how to get a scholarship and go for free. And so that forced me to look at my athletic abilities in all of the sports that I was doing. So volleyball, it was very fun, but I wasn't good. (laughs) I was short. I couldn't spike the ball. I couldn't overhand serve. It's just like, I'm not going to college with those kind of skills. So volleyball was like, there's no point in continuing on with volleyball. Basketball, also really fun. Really loved, loved the game. Had a great jump shot. but zero ball handling skills and I was too fast to control the dribble so I'd always turn over the ball so of course that's not going to earn me a scholarship to college and so that actually just left track (laughs) track wins by process of elimination for the other sports but once I made that decision to just focus on track that's when things started to get better because I was actually focusing on trying to get better so that's the important part of the equation I wasn't like some superstar running age group track, killing everybody from age four. I was 16 deciding like, this is my best route to college. How do I get better at this thing? Uh, but do you think your active life before had uh, had impact on your, your success in high school, in the high school track? I think so. I think anytime you're out playing, anytime you're moving, any sport when you're that young, will ultimately contribute to whatever it is you decide to focus on later. So the fact that I wasn't in track seriously early on, I think is a reason why I'm still in track now. 
Uh, it didn't burn me out. I didn't have to specialize early. I just got to play. I got to understand how my body moves in space. I mean, the long jump takeoff is like preparing for a layup. So had I not spent all that time um, on a basketball court doing those <laughs> warm-ups before games shooting a million layups, that would have been harder to teach me in the long jump. In fact, um, going into world championships, the first title that I won, we used to have a whole training session on a basketball court where me and my jumps coach would just dunk or try to dunk the entire session because that's how you were trained to take off in the penultimate. Yeah, because you, you won the, the 2005 world championships, as you said, just a couple of weeks before turning 20 years old. So you were very young. And by that time, you, you had went to the University of Tennessee, where you also won the NCAA titles, both indoors and outdoors in 2005 as well. So tell us a bit about your collegiate career. Yeah. So I earned the scholarship. <laughs> I, dad was happy. Mom was happy. They didn't have to pay for school. Um, but my freshman year in college was very average. I got my butt kicked every week in training. And then when the season came, I got my butt kicked at every meet. It's an SEC conference. Everybody's fast. And it wasn't, it wasn't spectacular. The only thing that I did well my freshman year was that I didn't gain any weight. Like I didn't, I didn't overeat. I didn't, you know, fill up on junk food, which was so easy to do as a student athlete in college with a bunch of snacks. Right. So that's the only thing that I did successfully. Uh, it wasn't until the summer of my freshman year when uh, my coach took me to junior nationals that I had a little breakthrough and, and that's largely, um, credited to a totally different coach. So not even my own coach gave me a lecture before the long jump, basically saying like, look, kid, you're really fast. Stop giving away your speed at takeoff. Like decide when you're on the runway to just bring it 100%, like a kamikaze pilot. They know that there's no coming back from this mission. And so they give 100%. That's the attitude you need to have when you're on the runway. And something clicked because I think just two weeks before, I had made it to nationals as a freshman in the long jump, which was, was a big deal. But when I got there, I choked. <laughs> I was like, oh, my God, you know, and I didn't jump well. So that was just two weeks before. So with this, like, this, this speech in my head, I'm like, okay, I'm going to be like a kamikaze pilot on the runway. I'm just going to bring it. I jumped 665. And apparently, like, that distance would have been top three at Nationals two weeks before. And I was super elated. That's a, that was like a foot PR for me at that point. 12 inches, 25 centimeters or something like that. PR. And my coaches were pissed. Because <laughs> they were like, if I would have just figured that out two weeks before, we would have had points at nationals. We could have finished higher as a team. But, you know, as you know, progress comes in track when it comes. Like, we can't really schedule when this stuff happens. But that moment was a defining moment in my career. So going into my sophomore year, I was no longer afraid on the runway. I I wasn't, you know, I was very mentally stable at big competitions. And so I was, I won everything because my focus shifted from, oh my God, who's here that can jump far to, am I going to bring it 100% on the runway? Yeah. And you went on winning the world title as one of the youngest ever. How did it feel to, to become a world champion at at so so young age it felt really good because nobody well very few people thought that it would happen i was crazy enough to believe that it could happen although i wasn't sure that it absolutely would you know i kind of went into the meet open to the possibility that i had a chance but i also wasn't cocky enough to be like i'm gonna win right <laughs> that's just not that's not even my personality style but my coach at the time was just like, no, you're not going to win. So go have fun. And I was like, what? 
Like, no, that's like, that's not the attitude. That's not the, that's not the vibe we want going into the final. Um, so she pissed me off enough for me to like really hunker down and like try to beat everybody and prove them wrong. And even my parents who knew how big of a deal it was that I made the team didn't think, didn't bother to come to Helsinki because they were like, eh, she's not going to win. <laughs> we'll, just, we'll just stay home, you know? And so all of those things together, plus, you know, taking the lessons I learned from getting getting my butt kicked at the Olympic trials in 2004, taking eighth, but being the youngest person in the final, uh, all of that prepared me for that moment. And, you know, whether I, whether I thought I was going to win or people thought I was going to win or whatever, my focus and approach to the meet would have been the same another thing that I had going for me there was that it was horrible weather 40 degrees raining on the day of the long jump but guess yeah, what is. I'm from Ohio <laughs> <laughs> this was, is nothing new it was raining all that championships all day and, and yeah the I think there was one great and, day of yeah. weather and, and then to, <laughs> they had to like push water away from the tracks it was crazy yeah it was crazy my clothes my bag were soaked like everything was soaked through but that's how track season starts in ohio most of the time track season in ohio starts with full banks of snow shoveled out and we run between the piles of snow oh. outside so it's like oh it's 40 and rainy so what whereas you know like some of my older um long jump competitors were just like oh this is horrible this is not the weather that's going to produce a good meet i didn't know any better i was just like it is what it is we got to jump and so that attitude really helped me so winning was satisfying but also extremely scary because my whole life changed in a moment in like that fast in an instant i can't imagine that um and then like half a year later you finished second at the world indoors but now you got the, the gold medal since the winner got tested positive for for doping mm -hmm. what are your views on on cases like that uh, how did it felt to 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 become the world indoor champion several years after and, and get the medal several several years after the competition yeah Well, first, I never got the medal because okay. when they asked her for it, she said she lost it. And so she did. I don't have it either. And that's whatever. Right. Like the window is gone. And this is this is largely how I feel about that. The damage that was done in the moment from her doping, it that can't be fixed because what people don't know is that, you know, I was struggling to pull it together going into the Moscow Indoor World Championships. Me and my coach were kind of trying to deal with this new dynamic of being a pro athlete, pro coach. Um, and I was still so young. I was only 20, right? And I didn't, I didn't have a lot of years of college experience under my belt. Everything was new. And I wasn't transitioning well, to be honest. Like you went from being in college for two seasons to suddenly you're the pro and you're the boss of everything. And It was it was unpleasant, an unpleasant transition that we didn't handle well. In Moscow, so I started to get this feeling like I think I might have to go. Like maybe my time here is up because everything is hard. Whereas the year before, it was much more effortless. And losing that day validated in my in my young brain that it was time to leave. I know for a fact that if I would have still won. If I would have won on that day, if she was not there because, you know, she was doping, if she had already been removed from the competition and I stood atop that podium with the gold medal, I would have been, I would not have left, which would have totally changed everything for me, probably for the better. I mean, it's hard to say looking back, but that moment, losing in that moment started me on a path towards leaving the coach which led me to LA which led to my basically seven year decline had I won that day that would not have happened and that's hard to there's no amount of medal ceremonies after the fact or apologies that can change that reality as you said you 
you had some really really tough years after that. Uh, you left college with a, with a personal best of six eighty nine. Then you were way behind your your PB for like six or seven years. Uh, what led up to 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 that struggle? So mentally, I was a mess. Like, and it started indoor, uh, just losing that way. Well, what I thought was losing was for me embarrassing and hard to process. I was so embarrassed because I knew that people thought that my outdoor championship title was a fluke, and so the way that I struggled indoor, I. <laughs> being like self-centered at the time thought everybody in the world must be thinking I'm a fluke right and so I internalized that which caused a lot of insecurity and self-doubt that morphed into you know woe is me maybe eating my emotions I remember having the worst diet during the time and so I was gaining weight and as you know as a jumper <laughs> if you're carrying extra weight like even one pound, one kilo can make a difference in your jump. And I probably, I probably was 10, 12 pounds overweight or too heavy for the long jump. And it just didn't occur to me that that was like, I was doing it to myself. It took a really long time for me to get there. But in the meantime, you know, as I'm still trying to try and still trying to compete, it's getting worse and worse. Instead of taking a breath and saying, okay, how can I fix this? What am I doing wrong? I was more like, this is horrible. I, I probably should retire. I think, you know, I think I've lost my ability to, to run, to jump. Uh, this is the end. I didn't, it didn't occur to me that I just needed to switch my behavior until much later. What, what have you learned now from, from these really tough years um, mm-hmm. I guess as you said you 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 change your your behavior but what have you learned from from these these years yeah the general the general lesson is that elite performance high performance world-class stuff is a lifestyle so like sure we go to the track for a set number of time a period of time and we're in the gym for a period of time But all of that time where we're not at the gym or not on the track needs to be on point two. And it was my thinking that as long as I was doing what I needed to do on the track or in the gym, it didn't matter what I did elsewhere. And that is a trap. Everything you do outside of the weight room and outside of the track has to support what you're doing in the weight room and on the track. So that means anything that you put in your mouth to eat or drink is going to affect what's going to happen. Um, staying up late at night going to affect what's happening. You know, all of these things. And it, for whatever reason, and I, I fancy myself a smart individual, but for whatever reason, that didn't click <laughs> in the beginning. But now it's like, yeah, every single minute, every hour, you have to be doing something that supports your goals on the track or in the gym. Yeah, you're you're a... A professional athlete, twenty four seven, all, all around the clock. Exactly. Yeah, and and it, I just it didn't. And there are a lot of people that think this, you know, that like we clock in and clock out. Like our professional life has, you know, an eight hour shift, and then we're done. And that's just not the case. Yeah, but when you learned uh, when you learned that that you need to be professional all the time. You went back to the international stage in, in 2012 by first first by taking a, a bronze medal at the World Indoor Championships in the 60 meters, and then by winning the four by 100 meters uh, at the Olympic Games in London with a still standing world record. You also finished fourth in the 100 meter there. So tell us about how it was to bounce back from from these really tough years and to become an Olympic champion and a world record holder that was satisfying because it was really really hard like i literally had to do a life overhaul you've seen those shows where it's like extreme makeover home edition or person it was a extreme makeover athlete edition for me and it was uncomfortable at times and required a lot of sacrifice 
So doing that every single day, day in, day out, making an Olympic team as a sprinter when I was previously just known as a jumper was also um, a surreal experience because like, I remember for a moment looking around, like, how did this jumper get into the 100 meter final at the Olympic games? And then be only 0.04 away from a medal. <laughs> yeah, so it was like a really big deal, but it was very, very difficult. I mean, eat, sleep, social media, friends, social events, like all of that was overhauled. And so winning, winning there with the relay team, the world record, making the Olympic final, running 1085, that validated that struggle. And even though the seven years was a struggle, 2012 was a different kind of struggle. That's it's very difficult. It's I wish more athletes would talk about how hard it is to do these to do these things because it's very hard. It was so hard that even when I was standing on the podium and listening to the anthem, feeling the pride and the relief and the validation, I didn't want to do it again. It was, I was like, there's no way I can do this again. No way. It was too hard. <laughs> it took too much of myself. But then, you know, we're athletes. We're crazy. We keep doing it again. <laughs> yeah. And what, what, what did you do to, to get out of this struggle and to change your, your behavior? What, where did you start and what elements of your life did you change? I started with food, actually. So I had to change the way that I was eating. So I went from, I was one of those people that thought like, if I eat this burger, it's all good because I, I'm going to go to the track and burn the calories or I was eating a lot of sugar. So I bas I essentially went to a low to no sugar diet and stopped drinking. So I stopped drinking soda and all of those things. I started to eat six times a day, which was very difficult at first because it just feels like so much food, but I was properly fueling, which allowed my metabolism to take over and allowed my body to really, you know, use what it needed and get rid of what it didn't. And so I was the most lean. I had a new coach that was very much about um, being technical and efficient. And so we, I learned how to run with very little wasted movement. So I got really fast. I got really fast, really fast, which is why I had to stop jumping because I couldn't handle the penultimate step with my new speed. Um, I had no social media presence, which was nice at the time because you can find yourself in rabbit holes <laughs> online on Twitter or Instagram, just scrolling, scrolling, scrolling indefinitely. And be like in this black hole wasted time or or worse you know comparing yourself to other people which is really bad for me especially because I was a little fragile at the time um those are the big things okay and uh, in 2013 then you you didn't compete so much due to an injury in your back uh tell us about that what what caused the injury and how did you came back from it in, in 2014 Yeah, so after the Olympics, remember when I said I didn't want to do it again? Yeah. <laughs> I wasn't, yeah, I really didn't want to do it again. But instead of quitting or retiring, I joined the bobsled team to buy myself some time, like to figure out what I wanted to do. So I did that for, I think, a little over half the season, sliding around Europe and racing. And I learned two things things during that time one I wasn't ready to stop being an athlete <laughs> I loved it too much and two I could return to the long jump because the way that I had to jump into the sled after pushing it was exactly the penultimate that I thought I could no longer do because of my speed but when you're having when you're having to do that into the back of an accelerating sled you figure out real quick how to get that penultimate step together <laughs> And so I got a lot of practice. It was basically a whole season of long jump practice, and I didn't even realize it. So I decided to come back and attempt long jumping. I sent my coach a message from Lake Placid, where the Olympic Training Center was for the bobsledders, and was like, hey, I think I can come back to the long jump. <laughs> and he was like, what? <laughs> so I said, yeah, look at this video. 
And it was me going into jumping into the bobsled and look like a long jump takeoff. So I had to go into training, you know, like a almost like a boot camp situation because I had spent half the year bobsledding and I needed to catch up. So I was in the gym and I was doing a power clean uh, at what would have been a new max, um, 200 pounds. Uh, don't remember what that is in kilos right now, but I tried to force it. It wasn't there. I tried to force it, tried to force it up and lost my balance and didn't drop the weight for some reason. I held on to it and my disc in my lower back just slid out to the left. It was horrible. And then to make matters worse, I felt it. Then I dropped the weight. I tried to walk it off. And then I can I continued to do plyos at the end of the session on my back. So after that workout, I like waddled to my car because now I'm really feeling it. And by the time I drove home, I couldn't walk. I couldn't walk. So like that that ended my season. And in order to heal my back, I had to actually take a course of um, anti-inflammatory steroids, which would have rendered me ineligible to compete. So I had to take the year off to heal from that. Okay, but uh, what about the bobsled? It's it's a lot of a lot of track and field athletes going into the bobsled. Is it is it like an easy transition from from track and field to the bobsled? I wouldn't say it was an easy transition, but our skills <clears throat> are transferable because I was a brake woman, which puts me in the back of the sled. I'm responsible for pushing the sled off the off the block, right? It's the same movement and shin angles as accelerating out of starting blocks. So that's why a lot of sprinters are end up in the back of the sled. The issue for me was I was just as strong, faster than other brake women, but I was too light. And so um, the fact that I wasn't putting on a lot of weight actually worked against me in that specific sport. But yeah, that's why you see so much synergy between track and field and bobsled, same motion. And it's probably a lot easier for the coaches of the bobsled team to not have to teach that part. It's easier to teach like how to flip your hands so you can push a sled then to teach someone proper shin angles and like how to keep your head down and accelerate the start. Yeah. Okay, but you were back in, in 2014 in the long jump and you mm -hmm. won the Diamond League title and improved your PB uh, jumping seven, seven meters for the first time, 702, mm -hmm. uh, and being consistent around your previous PB, 689. So was that the time you felt like I'm back now for real in the long jump. This Now I'm back uh, in the long jump. I knew I was going to be back after bobsledding, <clears throat> even though I had not jumped yet, because bobsled is super scary. Like, it's fun, but it's terrifying. And I remember the feeling, you, you probably have felt this, like running full speed into a takeoff is also scary. But it's not as scary as running full speed on, into a bobsled. <laughs> and so I knew that now, because I had had that experience of bobsled and making it work, I had the confidence that I could just make the long jump work. That whatever it was, it was never going to be as scary as the bobsled. So I knew that I was going to be okay. And I think that confidence in myself allowed me to be as consistent as I was, to just bring it every time. So yeah, 14 um, also didn't have a lot of pressure because like nobody expected much of me. I hadn't jumped in forever. And so it was it was more like getting to go back to something I love, seeing what's happened, you know, seeing it, seeing whether it works out or not, and really having nobody say like, oh, let's see what the former world champion is going to do in the long jump. Nobody cared. And so I didn't have a lot of pressure, but I did have a lot of confidence in myself. And that's why I think that season went the way that it did. Yeah, and did you saw yourself as a long jumper or a sprinter? Because you you won the Diamond League in the long jump, but you won the US title in the 100 meter. So did you saw yourself as a, a sprinter or a long jumper or, or a combination? It's definitely a combination of both. If I'm not sprinting well, I don't jump well, period. And so I have to be 
I have to be a sprinter first on the runway and then I become a jumper. But then at the same time, like when I'm in the starting blocks for the 100, I have to be a jumper because I need to be explosive out of the blocks. So both things for me work together. I can't really separate or prioritize one over the other. Yeah, so you, when you're training, you, you focus on, on both. Yep. Mm-hmm. In 2015, exactly 10 years after your world, first world title, you won the world championships in Beijing bettering your PB 7.12 meter from the US championships by two mm -hmm. centimeters to 7.14. So you had won the, the 4 by 100 meter Olympic title before and then a, mm -hmm. a world indoor bronze medal. But mm -hmm. this was the first time you won a, a individual world title again since, since 2005. So mm -hmm. how did it feel to, to, to win that long jump title again? I was so happy because I proved myself wrong in that moment because, you know, like I told you, that whole time I was having doubts about, is it over? Can I do it? Can I come back? And so even though 14 was a great year, it was an off year, so I didn't have that additional bonus validation of getting a medal or a world title. So it really felt like a nice little ribbon on a long chapter of my life. I mean, 10 years is a long time. People often don't have professional careers that are that long. And to get to finally come back to the long jump 10 years later and get that medal was like, if I walked away from track and field after that, I would have been satisfied. I'm glad I didn't because I still, there were more medals to get, but I would have been happy because That's where I started, and I fought my way back to it again. So it must must have felt amazing to go into the 2016 Olympic preseason as the world champion. Yeah, it did. But, you know, it does add a little bit of pressure because now there's the expectation of performance. And I tend to do better when I don't... I don't... I have the expectation for myself, but it's not external. I do better because then I can I can turn my focus inward rather than be so worried about what people expect of me. Uh, I still struggle with that. Okay. So in a, a lot of ways, it was like a good position to be in because you, you carry that confidence over. But in reality, everybody starts back at zero. So it's not like I got I get any bonus points or a head start for being world championship. So It like felt good, but also it's like you still got to do all of the work and people are still going to come for you, essentially. Yeah. And uh, I understand you make something in the preseason, you make something that you call the preseason prep. So mm -hmm. what is that? Preseason prep is like how I get my mind right for what's coming. Because, you know, after... Each season, you might have a, you have your downtime, and then you spend it maybe looking back over the last season and dealing with what comes up. If it was like excitement because things went well, or disappointment because things didn't. Preseason prep gives me um, the space to kind of debrief for, for the last year and then redirect for the next year. And just having that time and that focus and that clarity helps me kind of stay motivated, helps me to get started. Because let me tell you, that first week back to training sucks. It's very hard. It's like, depending on how hard you went in your off season, it's like some of the worst training sessions in your life. And so it really keeps me focused on the bigger goal to have gone through you know, new goal setting and the vision board and what I want out of the season and what it defining what success looks like. It's really important for me to take that time to do it first and maybe again in the middle of the season, depending on like how things are going, just to direct my focus and my motivation. Yeah, that's great. In 2016, it was the Olympic Games in Rio. And you made it, uh, made a team there in both the hundred meters and the long jump, and took a took a spot in the in the four by one hundred meters as well. Well, there you made it to the semifinal in the hundred, uh, set a PB of seven seventeen in the long jump to win, and 
won your second consecutive title in the 4x100 meters. And the long jump competition was a really, really tight competition as well. All settling uh, in in the last round, you, you won just two centimeters ahead of Brittany Reese. Mm -hmm. Tell us about your Olympic experiences from, from 2016. Yeah, that was... Ooh, that was a crazy one. To end up there in three events was big for me. I was really disappointed in my 100-meter performance, but um, that had a lot to do with my health at the time, and it was just really bad timing, and I just didn't have the energy to execute or perform the way I needed to in order to make that final. But I had to move on from that really quickly because I had two more events And so with um, the time between the 100 and the long jump, I just focused on making sure I didn't feel that same disappointment in the other events. I knew that in order for me to win the long jump, I needed to be as fast as possible. And I knew I was fast because I'd run 10-7 that season. That, that made me the fastest long jumper in the world. And so... Just off of that, I was aware that just carrying that speed into the board could be enough to win as long as I nailed the takeoff. And so the for like two months leading up to Rio, all I did was full-blown approaches and like try to jump straight up in the air, which is the craziest feeling in the world. That's all I did for two months. And that's what I did in Rio, really just trying to take advantage of my own personal um gifts essentially instead of not trying to go out there and and jump like Britney or jump like Daria and just try to be something I'm not I went out there and tried to run full speed jump straight up use my core strength to keep my legs up <clears throat> and that's what I did and yeah the competition was close but you know I had no idea until it was over how close the competition was because another thing that I decided was that it didn't matter I didn't know about the lead changes Or, you know, like when Ivana broke her national record, like none of that, none of those things, because none of those actually matter or affect my ability to execute my jump. I knew when I took the lead, obviously, because I can see the performance board after I jumped and it says one. And I didn't settle into the knowledge that I had won until I took my last jump, which was also, I think, 7, 13, or 14, still a very big jump. And that right there was like, I'm good, like, finally, uh, to come back and get the world championship medal 10 years. And then my first medal in 2016, I don't even know how many. I mean, I started long jumping in 1997. <laughs> so to get my first Olympic medal uh in 2016 what is that like 20 19 years yeah. of jumping led to that moment I felt I couldn't have asked for a better ending so to speak to a long jump story yeah but during the competition you had this tunnel vision focus then mm -hmm. okay and You said you felt a bit pressure going into the 2016 season as as the world champion. Now, how did it felt going into the 2017 season then uh, being both the world champion and now the Olympic champion as well? Was the pressure even higher going into oh, yeah. 2017? <clears throat> yeah, it, that was that was worse for me because I also, you know, I was aware, unlike other people were aware, of all the things going on in my life off the track. And so I was carrying the pressure and obligation to still perform and compete well with my like life going to shit in the background with people's expectations of world number one in 14, world champion in 15, Olympic champion in 16. What's she going to do in 17? Can she do it again? And I'm just like running on empty, trying to keep performing at this level with all of this stuff happening. And I I was exhausted and my health was deteriorating and it was just a lot. So to get to world championships and still leave with a medal, bronze, even though, you know, not gold. And there were some people who were like, oh man, is she losing it? Is it over? Is the reign over? 
no, it's not over. I earned that medal with all of this stuff going on. So it was a very difficult year, but like you, like you just alluded to, I am really good at being in a tunnel on the runway. And in 2017, I was just in a tunnel for in life because I needed to get from point A to point B and I needed to do it with as few outside distractions as possible. So yes, the pressure was more on a performance level, but I knew what I needed to do. I knew what my preseason prep looked like. I knew what goals I wanted to achieve and that's just the lane I was in. And I didn't even, I didn't let up until after I had that medal when I gave myself permission to exhale and kind of fall apart. And now I'm, so now I'm, you know, putting the pieces back together. Yeah. And you, were you happy with, with just getting a medal there? I was happy with the fact that the best I could do on that day was good enough to get a medal. Yeah. Okay. And then after 2017, uh, 2019 was another tough year for you with, with many troubles with your health and mm-hmm. injuries. Uh, so you, you even switched foot, take off foot? Yeah, I had to because I didn't want to just give up. Because like I did all of this work in 17 to kind of like get my life back and like to really get it together. Only to sprain my ankle in 18 and then to like for it to not heal for a year, which is ridiculous for a sprained ankle. It's like usually back up and going in a month or, or two. And because of all of that, I decided to switch feet because I didn't want to just be out for a year. Um, that was very difficult, but you know, I tried it. I wasn't awesome at it. I mean, like I said, I've been on my left foot since I was 12 years old and I'll be 35 next week. <laughs> That's a lot of years to undo and try to, to try to switch. The thing I learned about myself though, is that I am willing to do what it takes to, to continue. And I was happy to learn that about myself because occasionally you're not sure. Like when, when you go through a lot of hard times in a sport, occasionally the question comes up, like, should I just do something else? And the fact that that didn't occur to me, The fact that it it I chose to switch feet before deciding to do something else told me that I wanted to keep on, right? So that was that was good to know. Turns out my ankle didn't heal because I had a bunch of other hidden health issues, anemia, um, a tumor. And so now that the tumor has been removed, the blood transfusion has had all the blood that I lost hemorrhaging over the year. Um, has been replenished. My iron levels are back up. My ankle healed. And so I'm back on my original ankle, thank God, and um, and jumping and running again. So I'm looking forward to doing what I usually do, doing the stuff we talked about, like figuring out what I want out of the season, training around the clock, living that lifestyle, and seeing where it gets me. And how are you doing doing now? You're okay with, your, with all your your healthy shoes oh yeah training everything you know with the exception of covid and how it's disrupted everything else everything for me is trending upward for sure that's great what about the future then uh, this 2020 season is far from ordinary but the olympic games has been postponed to 2021 what are your goals and targets for the for the following years Yeah, so that starts with this year, right? So this is, I would say that this is my first track season of being healthy since 2017. So it's important to just keep training and like just getting the body ready to train because once training for the the new Olympic year starts, maybe late October, November, I need to be ready. My body needs to be ready to do that work. And so that's the goal for, that's the immediate goal. Next year, the goal is to get the qualifying marks for the 100, get the qualifying marks for the long jump, <clears throat> and try to make that team. 100, long jump, four by one, which is like my usual, <laughs> well, in an Olympic year. So, yeah, I want to do that. And then follow that up with world, making the world championship team. Hopefully, I've never made a world championship team in the 100. Um, I would like to attempt that one more time before I go. And... Um, the long jump again for sure and I've never run a relay at a world championship either so maybe 
take care of those things before I retire. I would love to, in a perfect world, retire after the Oregon World Championships. And that that championships has also been postponed to 2022, is it? Yes. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, and now we're gonna jump into another segment of the podcast. It's it's the quiz. So I have five questions about long jump and American history. And and okay. The, the first question is. Uh, Uh, we talked about it earlier. The the 2005 World Championships. You became one of the youngest uh, world long jump champions in history. Actually, the second youngest. Mm -hmm. Do you know who is the youngest world champion in the long jump in the history of the event? Heike Drexler. Yeah. I met her. She interviewed me after 2005. She oh. was in the mix zone. <laughs> yeah. She won. She actually won the first edition of of the World Championships. Also in in, uh, in Helsinki, in Helsinki mm -hmm. yeah, nineteen eighty three, and she was eighteen years old then. Okay, and uh, uh, the second question: You won the the long jump and the four by one hundred meters at the twenty sixteen Olympic Games. Uh, do you know how many track and field gold medals the U.S. took in total? Was it thirty? Uh, I guess it was about thirty medals, but. Gold well, 30 medals, medals, but not 30 gold medals. Hmm. No, I don't know the answer. What is the answer? So it was 13. Oh, okay. Almost half, though. Yeah. Okay, the third question. Your jump of 689 was one of the best collegiate jumps ever. Do you know who holds the U.S. collegiate record in the long jump? Okay. I think... There's two names that are coming up. I don't know why. Um, I want to guess Carol Lewis, but also, what is her name? It starts with an E. <laughs> I don't remember. What's the answer? So it was Jackie Joyner Kersey. What? Really? She has the collegiate record? Yeah. 699. Really? She did uh, 699 in 1985. Oh, so it was way for back. UCLA. No, I don't know where, where she went. But okay. Probably. Okay. Okay, and the fourth question: You've jumped seventy—not uh, seventy meters, but seventy meters. <laughs> yes, <laughs> seven meters many times. But uh, in how many competitions have you done that? I don't know the answer to this. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not even going to guess. I have no idea. So I counted before, and I counted it to eight competitions. Oh, nice. Okay. Over four seasons, I think. Seasons. So twice a year on average. Yeah. <laughs> Nationals and champs. Nationals and champs. But I guess you have you have a lot more competitions over 690 or something. Okay. Yeah. And the last question. You've jumped over seven meters in eight competitions. But how many women has jumped over seven meters in the history uh, outdoors? Oh, a lot. Especially, especially during the golden age in the eighties. <laughs> so, I don't know the answer, but it's probably over twenty. What's the answer? It's way, way more. It's seventy-four. Wow! Yeah. <laughs> And then I, I guess I didn't count it, but I guess there is a few more indoors as well who who hasn't done it. Yeah. Yeah. Seventy-four. That's amazing. So at least you got that that first question right. I got the important one right. <laughs> <laughs> I knew I was gonna fail it when you told me there was a quiz. <laughs> I have some some questions from our followers as well. So Pietro Fashin wants to know what do you do? What do you have like a pre meet routine? So I. Like I said, I wake up early, so I still wake up at the same time on the day of a competition. And I will do a short yoga flow just to move my body because you don't want the warm-up before the competition to be the first time you're actually active. That's not a good idea. And then I look at the meet schedule and I work backwards and by, you know, 
I make my schedule. I see the call room time. I work out when I need to arrive to the track. I look at the bus schedule, see when I need to leave for the track. And from there, I schedule my meals. And so there's like in my room, there'll be like a little timetable for myself, like wake up, yoga, breakfast, nap, (laughs) lunch, nap, you know, those kind of things. Get ready, leave for bus. You know, and that really keeps me, it keeps my nerves at bay too, because I have a very real checklist that I get to go down. And then depending on my nerve level, that determines what kind of music or movies I'm watching on that day. I try to make sure I eat for the last time three hours before the competition and pack light snacks as necessary if I find that I'm hungry within that window. But that's pretty much what I do uh, on the day of the meet. I try to eat early, uh, eat dinner the night before, like before six, so that I don't spend a lot of my time trying to sleep, trying to digest digest a heavy meal, uh, and it ruins my sleep. So yeah, so it will probably start the night before where I try to eat a good meal early, give myself time to digest, start hydrating a lot that night and try to sleep really well, wake up, same time, meditate, yoga, and then the rest is on my little timetable that I make. Yeah, and then hopefully a a seven-meter jump. Yeah. So you talked about doing yoga, uh, and we have another question from Lise De Wheaton, uh, who -hmm. wants to know how you design your yoga practice to to sync to your, your track and field training. Yeah. So I went to yoga teacher training. So I got certified as a yoga instructor. And during that 200 hours of training, we learned how to different types of yoga, what yoga supports what. And so when it comes to being a complement to training, I like to do restorative yoga because that's a yoga that kind of helps um, regulate your central nervous system, which is what we jumpers our training for the most part. And so on active recovery days, that's really good because you don't want to spend your active recovery day wired. You want to actually recover. So doing yoga as active recovery allows you to keep moving your body, but puts you in the parasympathetic system, which allows you to rest and digest properly. So you'll feel better the next day. And so it's a matter of when you do it, And since I pretty much do a little bit every day, it just helps me regulate the intensity of training and balance it out so that I can I can recover better. Yeah. And it's also preventing injuries. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Okay. And then Cora Rose uh, wants to know what allows you to, to still have fun with, with track and field at, at such a high level of of competition why why being at, at at this high level of competition what makes you what makes you like and and love the track and field yeah because i'm still not perfect like i can still look at a jump and be like oh my god that was horrible <laughs> and so there are still so many opportunities to get out there and train and try to get a little bit better at something right and so i'm driven by that like how close to perfect can i get you know how close to perfection how can i execute better so that right there drives me on that level track and field not always fun it's not always fun and i'm not always motivated but at the end of the day i do want to know how good i can be and i don't think that i'm there yet and so that keeps me going uh yeah and the last question if you could invite a guest to track us by triple jumpers who would you like to listen to Mm. who would I like you know who would be cool another sprinter jumper blessing Okabari because she a lot of people forgot that she actually got a medal in the long jump as well but she's run so many hundreds and have been in so many finals um I think it would be interesting to hear how she decides to jump or not jump for a season whereas I just try to do both all the time like I would I'm curious to know about how somebody like that chooses when to step into the jumps versus when to sprint. I will definitely invite her. Yeah. Okay, Tiana, 
thank you very much for joining the podcast. I, I learned a lot from you today and I'm, I'm sure the, the listeners will as well. So thank you and, and good luck in the future. Thank you so much, Marcus. It was a pleasure talking to you. This was a really inspiring episode. And as I said, I genuinely learned a lot from Tiana and I hope you did as well. She had so many good tips and tricks on how to get better and I really loved her mindset with being professional 24-7 all around the clock. I wish her the best of luck in the future and I hope she can end her career on a good note during these following years. If you have any athlete, coach or another person you want me to talk to, send a DM to Jumpers on Instagram or send an email to triplejumpers18 at gmail.com and I'll see what I can do to make them participate. I will be back soon with another episode. Until then, have a good time. Bye. Tremendous speed once again. And he's, oh my goodness, that is huge. It's a white flag for the Cuban. Fédit Tambo for la postérité. Ah!